All right, let's get this show on the road here. Man, it's so weird. Like some some years, the the first service is empty, and like uh, second service is packed. Now it's first service is packed, and this one is semi full, and it's just uh, it's interesting. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. Um, it is, uh, it's going to be an interesting sermon, I'll just say that. Um, the study guide um, says that we are in Judges chapter 10, and we're supposed to go through chapter 11 into verse 28. But as I was studying this week, I could not get past verse 16, So, which isn't unusual. Um, and I have, if you've been here any matter of time, I've gone through large sections of Scripture, um, but I... I was stuck on verse 16, and you'll see by the, the text, the theme of the text, why I spent a, a better part of a week considering my own sin. And um, you don't hear sin talked about a lot in churches anymore. Um, talk about brokenness and things like that, but we're going to talk about sin. And uh, I'm not convinced that we as a people, we as individuals, we as a church, we as uh, a spiritual society, if you will, culture, if we could even be described as that, that we comprehend the sinfulness of sin, the darkness of sin, the ugliness of sin. And we don't like to comprehend it. We don't like to think about it. That's not in our top ten list of, what am I going to dwell on today? How about my sin? Um, But the cross of Jesus Christ, if you really look at the cross of Jesus Christ, the brutality of the cross, the... um, not beyond the brutality, what is actually happening there? The Son of God uh, being crushed by the Father, ultimately, as Isaiah 53 says. Um, it is the boldest proclamation that we are more sinful than we will ever admit or even know. Because I think we look at the cross and go, well, it's not that bad, right? I mean, my sin isn't worthy of me being crucified, is it? Yes. That's kind of the point. And yet on the cross, we also see this bold proclamation that we are more loved than we could possibly imagine. And so you can't just look at one aspect of that. You have to look at both. And I think we're more apt to look at love. More apt to look at the things that make us feel better. Maybe not worse. Now, I believe that we need to come and we're going to do that today. And not because this was my great agenda and vendetta as I got into this scripture. It's just what the text provides us. And that's why we go straight through the scripture. We go, all right, what's the Bible tell us? Better or worse? Make us feel good, bad, whatever. And this one is going to show us, honestly, the ugliness of our sin. And I think that we have to have that. We have to look at the ugliness of our sin, the depth of our broken hearts, in order to see the bigness of the grace of God. Without sin, without seeing what we have been rescued from, which is honestly ourselves, grace is not what it ought be in our eyes. So if my agenda is anything, and maybe this should be with any sermon, I want you to hate your sin. And I want you to love God. So we're going to read in Judges chapter 10. I'm going to pray so I don't screw up in what I say and let the Holy Spirit speak and not me. So Father, I come before you as a sinful man, a man not worthy to come into your presence, a man who has no authority to speak on any of the merits that he has because they are all meaningless 
but I come on the authority of Jesus Christ. I speak as one adopted as your son, as one covered in the blood of the son that you killed on my behalf. I thank you for how you have rescued me from myself and how you continue to rescue me from myself. Will you move me out of the way today? Holy Spirit, will you speak? Will you speak the words of comfort and words of conviction that you know that we individually need? Help us not to be distant and to separate ourselves from what's spoken today, Father, but let us see our own hearts as you see them. and Let us see the bigness with which you love us despite that. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 10, I'll read the first few verses, beginning in verse 6. It says this, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve Him. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And verse 10 will end with, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals, which can be translated lords or just gods. So the beginning of Judges 10, if you remember last week, I went, took a chunk of Judges 10 and a chunk of Judges 12 to kind of wrap up all the minor prophets together. But the beginning of Judges 10 were two particular uh, uh minor prophets named Tola and Jair. And that was uh, two men. One was known, one was unknown. One seemed like they were successful. One seemed like who really knew if they were successful or not. Both were dead. But their reign was for 45 years combined. And it was 45 years of faithful leadership. And now we have a shift. And After those guys, Israel basically turns back to the same cycle they've been a part of for the entirety of the book of Judges. So up to this point, so up to those kind of ten chapters of Judges, we have had seven rebellions by God's children. We've had seven oppressors come in and as punishment to spank them, if you will, by God. And we have had seven deliverers used by God to rescue his people from the oppressors. God has been faithful over and over and over and over again, and the people have been unfaithful over and over to the extent now where they're going after seven gods. Now, after the death of those two judges, Tola and Jair, in the beginning, Israel, again, goes back to their sin, but this time it's described a little bit differently than the norm. As I said, they go after what amounts to seven gods. And so we have this sense that they haven't just sinned again. They've gotten really good at sinning. They are sin experts. They are super sinners. They've got PhDs in unfaithfulness. They are bad. 
This section, this few verses is like, man, these guys are not sinful. They're like sinful. They have really apostatized this time. And the number seven is used in Scripture to talk about perfection or completeness, right? You see it all through the seven days and, and those types of things, seven periods. So this is a series of seven, if you will. So when we talk about seven, they literally probably have gone after seven gods, but they are completely apostatized. They have gone, there's no bit of faithfulness left in them. They are perfectly sinful, if you will. And they haven't, this time, they're not satisfied with one God. They're satisfied with many, and they serve, it seems, everyone but the Lord, full-on, unashamed, unhindered, no holds barred. And the scary thing is that these seven gods uh, were attached to seven nations that God spoke about many hundreds of years before this. He had told Abraham when he first promised him that they will come to a promised land. He had told Moses and he had told Joshua that seven peoples would be conquered by him. In the beginning of Joshua, where he's just about to go in, and he wants to have confidence that God's actually going to show up and actually going to fight these battles for him. In Joshua chapter 3, here's what he says. Here's how you'll know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out is among you, that he, sorry, will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So what we see is that there were seven peoples they were supposed to thrust out. They each had their own gods. And now Israel, instead of driving them out like they're supposed to have done, they have decided to go after each of the seven gods. So they have completely apostatized and done the very opposite of everything that God told them to do. And the thing that you have to think about is that it's not that they're not spiritual people. It's not that they don't have the appearance of being religious people. There are lots of those today. Tons of those today. There are religious, spiritual people that look like completely faithful people. Faithfully give. Faithfully attend. Faithfully do all the things that has the appearance of godliness, but as Paul says, lacks any power to change the heart. Israel looks like a very spiritual people, but they are doing all of this, quote, spirituality for every God except the one true God. The one true God who made them, the one true God who had rescued them, the one true God who had made promises to them, who had sustained them through so many years, who had led them, and who had ultimately blessed them. They've gone after all these false gods. And so what happens here is, in a very natural way, Israel is facing the consequences of failing to listen to God. Of simply failing to heed His command of what He told them to do. And a lot of us, in terms of like, well, why are things going so poorly? Why are we um, suffering? Why am I feeling oppressed? With Israel here, we see that you, know, you can make all kinds of arguments of why they're in the situation they are. Well, if these people hadn't experienced this, if they had, things had gone better for them here, you know, it was just a circumstantial thing. The bottom line for these is that 
The simple answer is they disbelieve God's word. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. Where Adam and Eve were told, you are to be fruitful, multiply, don't eat from this tree, and they decided to disbelieve and disobey God's word. Though God's children were called to worship God, they were called to transform the culture, they were called to obey what he had to say, they decided to worship false gods and confirm um, conform to a pagan culture and disobey his words. And we can't forget that the culture like wasn't like unattractive. I mean, sometimes we talk about the world as if it's not an attractive thing. If, it's not allu- like, if it wasn't that alluring, we wouldn't sin. Right? We wouldn't go after it. There's a lot of allure. And the Canaanite culture weren't like a bunch of cavemen like walking around like, ooga, booga, booga, like, you know, and they didn't want to be like them. Like, they weren't dragging their women into their huts or whatever. They were a very advanced and, and beautiful culture, if sin can be beautiful, if you will. Very wealthy, very highly developed, very artistic. Um, they had all kinds of beautiful literature and architecture, and they had vastly superior cities compared to the Israelite little compounds that they had built. Um, and so materialism was just as strong of an allure to them as it is to us today. They looked at what they had and like, well, we're supposed to drive those people out, but man, I like their stuff. Stuff looks great. And the thing about this culture, though, and if you think about our culture, I mean, just kind of parallel a little bit, but I'm talking about the Canaanites. The culture's wealth was attached to an agrarian society. And their production of food, they, who knows how A plus B equals C, but somehow they made the connection that the growth of food, the production of food, and the fertility became a spiritual thing. So they began to attach their spirituality to their fertility and their their growth of their crops. And what that led to, ultimately, was a system of kind of sacred sex, sacred prostitution attached to like, well, we have fertility here and and we will, if we have fertility between men and women, um, we'll have fertility in our crops. And so they ultimately had religious practices that had sex worship and religious prostitution and incest and uh, all kinds of perversion to the extent where it went all the way to human sacrifice. So this is the culture that they saw. Imagine the average Israelite, you know, when he's comparing his worship experience, talking to Joe Canaanite over here, and the Israelite is like, you know, I'm going to go worship and sacrifice my grain and, you know, kill some sheep and stuff. What are you going to do? I'm going to go have some sex. Like, that was the comparison. I'm going to get wealth and money over here, and you're going to give your money away? So you see the allure of what it is. We under, our flesh understands that. And in essence, they became driven by, very simply, money and sex and indulgence. Wow, that sounds familiar. You want to talk about the things that destroy our society. They're pretty obvious. The, the highlights, if you will, they change over generations. But there's been two things that have been primarily pretty consistent. Sexuality and greed or money. Those have destroyed homes and families and cities and cultures and nations and pretty much are the root of most of the problems these days. 
So what happens to a culture when they begin to glorify these things? They begin, dare I say, to worship these things? Because they had God set up for fertility. God set up for wealth. I mean, specifically for that. The Bible makes it very clear what happens when people begin to worship these things. And it happened in the Canaanite culture. Now we see it happen in the Israelite culture. And guess what? It's still happening in our culture. Psalm 115 is a song in the Bible, and it says this, speaking about false gods and false idols. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. So These are the false gods they're going after. But then verse 8 says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So what happens to Israel? Well, it seems pretty obvious if you just look at the book of Judges. They began to worship gods of sexuality, worship gods that were dedicated to, quite frankly, violence, worship gods dedicated to wealth. And what do you see in Judges? Sexual perversion, violence, greed, driving all the brokenness. You see it all throughout, and you see it in our culture today. But it seems like when we talk about idolatry in our culture today, it's unlike ancient times. You don't see guys building little wood totems or stone altars in their backyard, so it's not like you go, oh, look, that guy's idolatrous. But we have the same seven gods. And as I began to actually investigate the actual gods they listed, the gods of Sidon and, and those types, what it led to me, it led me to uh, demonology. And what I began to see is that some of the princes of hell, as they would call it in demonology, are actually these gods. You ever heard of something called the seven deadly sins? All of it's connected. So we have our idols, we have our gods. They may not be called the gods of Sidon. They're called things like pride, and greed, and lust, and envy, and gluttony, and sloth, and anger. You should... See if you can name the seven deadly sins. Most of us can name some of them, and you should be a little fearful of the ones you can't name. Sometimes that's a sign of being forgetful because of a problem. I've been studying them, so I get to name them all. I guess I have no problems, but I also have them written down. But it's interesting, the one you forget. But our responses in stress and pains of life, when suffering comes in, they usually reveal our idols. When we get angry or, or we get worried or things feel hopeless. Like, think about this. When you get angry, when you get angry about some situation, usually that's rooted in the fact that you've told yourself that there's something you have to have whether that be control, whether that be security, whether that be respect from somebody. I see that play out in just relationships, whether it be my children, with my wife, with one another. And that something has just, quite frankly, just become too important to you. Sometimes we worry, same thing. Something has become way too important to you, so you worry that you might lose it. Because if you lose that thing that's so important to you, whether it be your security, whether it be that toy, whether it be that person, whether it be I didn't get that promotion and people don't respect me, if I lose that, suddenly you begin to worry because you've just been thrust into your own personal hell you've created. My hell is not having this thing. 
So what will happen, you'll create a savior to make sure you never get put in that personal hell. That's an idol. Or if you feel hopeless, if you feel despairing. We saw a lot of that when the economy came down and people lost their jobs. And what they discovered was that their work had a lot more of the identity attached to it than they ever imagined. How do I know that? What happens if you just make a stack of things that you are? Husband, father, uh, mom, dad, wife, uh, neighbor. Uh, maybe you've got some social club you're a part of. I mean, all these things. Christian. Job. You've got a stack of things. If being a son or a daughter of Christ is not the foundation, let's say it's at the top. But at the bottom is your job, your security, and who you are, your role. And that gets knocked out. What happens to everything else? Your whole world gets shaken. And if your faith was on the stack and not at the bottom, even your faith becomes into question. But if your faith's on the foundation, man, you can't be rocked. Lose your job, identity in Christ. Lose your spouse, like a brother did recently. That wasn't his foundation. Faith in Christ. And so you begin to see these idols coming out that we are, in fact, idolaters. And so here's the basic question for all of us to ask. One that we don't like to ask, but one that we have to ask. And I've been asking myself kind of often about this. And that is, does something or someone besides Jesus Christ captivate your heart and control your life? I'm not asking spouses to ask spouses, though I wish... Those are the kind of questions that would be great to ask. I just, you and Jesus all by yourself. Does something other than Him captivate you? Does it control you in the sense you make your decisions? Where you say, life only has meaning, or I only have worth, worth if I have blank, or if I don't have blank, right? What captivates you? What do you, what do you look for for security? That if taken away, oh my gosh, world is ending. What is that thing or person that you hope in? That, that thing or person you find meaning and accepting is? Where do you uh, turn to get power? What do you view as successful in others? And think about some more practical. Like, what do you sacrifice your time for, really? I mean, what do you carve time out for? What do you carve and make sure you save money for? What do you dedicate your resources to? Who or what are you most loyal to? I love this. How, how do you spend, or what do you think about in your free time? When you have nothing to do, where does your mind wander most often? I'll tell you where mine wanders, if I want to be honest with you. It's the church. Not necessarily Jesus. Get that? I have the same struggles. They go, well, it goes on my kids. Be careful. Nothing wrong with kids. Kids are beautiful. Kids are wonderful when they're not demons. They're great. Okay? But I know people that have idolized their family to the extent where they cut off all the relationships with the church, all the relationships even with, with the Lord Himself, so they can dedicate their time, money, and energy to their family. And they organize their entire lives around their family. Each kid's doing seven different sports, and they're saving money and sacrificing for their family. I'm not saying don't sacrifice for your family. 
But when it comes to take away from your devotion to Jesus Christ, like there's a comparison there, you've got a problem. Keller says it perfectly. He says, it's not that we love bad things, it's that we love good things too badly. And that's what we see in our own idolatry, and that's what we see in the idolatry of, of Israel. Sin is idolatry, but sin is also something else. And that's why I'm looking at the ugliness of sin. Sin is not just idolatry. Sin is not just worship. Sin is um, lawlessness. See, idolatry always leads to lawlessness. Idolatry and sin has these great promises of joy and and satisfaction and, and, and success, but lawlessness never leads to those things. Doing it a different way other than God's way will never lead to prosperity. It'll lead to spiritual poverty, even if it leads to earthly prosperity. And there are people that are spiritually impoverished, starving, who have plenty of food on the table and plenty of money in the bank. But here's what God says, and I'm going to go with him, because he seems to know what's going on. Joshua chapter 1, before they go in to conquer the promised land, what does he tell Joshua? Man, you're going to go into battle, and um, you are totally outnumbered by peoples bigger than you, more strategically uh, wiser than you, stronger than you. Some have chariots, some are giants. What does he tell him? Get your best weapon, get your armor? No, here's what he say. Here's how you'll have success. Verse 7 of chapter 1 in Joshua says, Only be strong and very courageous. Like brave? Like go out there and fight? No. Strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This, is, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So, in essence, sin is not just idolatry, it's lawlessness. It is the rejection of God's good law and believing that prosperity exists somewhere outside of the way God has things. Now we do that individually. God says this will bring you joy and you're like, I don't know, this looks like this will bring me joy. Nope, this will bring you joy. That will bring you death. And we say, mm, I don't think so, just like Adam and Eve did and we end up killing our relationships, our family, our job, pursuing those things that God said, that's what it's going to bring you. We see that in our culture. The whole same-sex marriage thing. What, at the core baseline, what you have is people saying, God's way must be wrong. God's way is cultural. God's way changes. And it feels good. And people appreciate it. And all these things, you go, but we're going against what God has said brings us prosperity, brings us joy. We've made a decision to become our own law. We made a decision a long time ago to say God may not be right. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's holding out on us. Maybe things change over time. Maybe God isn't relevant anymore. Sin is lawlessness. It's rejection of God's law. See, I think that we look at God, uh, we look at it in some ways um, as really that, not that big a deal. I mean, it's God's law, but come on, it's just like laws, like breaking the speed limit. You know what? It's kind of unfortunate and I'm kind of sad I got caught, but it's no big deal. Well, what about a law 
where every single sentence is death. Where every single breaking of the law is worthy of crucifixion. So we kind of look at the failure of Adam and Eve and the sin of men as not that big a deal. Like they just kind of, the fall is where they kind of accidentally tripped. Oops. Didn't mean to break your rule, God. You shouldn't view it that way. And you shouldn't view, review, or view your sin that way. Yes, we're caught in sin sometimes, but we don't always fall and trip into it. Like Adam and Eve, and like most of mankind, these guys jump in with both feet from the high dive into what is an empty pool of rebellion headfirst. And they've got a smile on their face. Men fall because they disobey and disbelieve God's word and they believe the promises of sin. At the core of it, it says God is a liar and something other than God in his way is going to make me happy. That's simply it. Israel's disobedience destroy their lives and they cry, as most people do, because it leads to death, as God said it would. Now the last time Israel cried was back in Judges chapter 6. And instead of God sending a hero, it was right before Gideon. Before he sent Gideon, arose up Gideon, he sent a prophet. And what did the prophet say? I'll tell you how you're in this mess. You didn't listen to God's voice. That is the problem. You plugged your ears, la, 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 God, and I'm going to do what feels good and right to me. They chose to ignore God's word. And here's what Israel says. Here, in this chapter, Judges chapter 10, verse 10, you hear it in their voice, right? They're crying, oh, this thing. and they go to God. God doesn't come to them. They go to God, and what do they say? We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So these are the people that God had warned. These are the people that God had saved. These are the people that God had blessed. And they cry out with full knowledge of exactly what they've done. There's no confusion. There's no, oh, I don't know how we got in this situation. They say, we forsook you and we've served other gods. They're not confused why they're oppressed, but they certainly sound like entitled adolescents coming to dad saying, save me again. I mean, this, we, we, we're your kids, right? You're supposed to save us. I know, I charged up the credit card for the 15th time, but, you know, you always save. And suddenly God says something different this time. Which should sober us to remembering that, yeah, God is very slow to anger, but that doesn't mean He doesn't get angry. God has a very long wick and it burns very slowly, but it burns. He is patient, but beware the anger of a patient man or a patient God. I think the expectation that we deserve forgiveness that we're owed grace, is a result of us really minimizing what sin is. We've redefined sin in our world as something that is a little bit easier to swallow. Um, We use the word like brokenness, and we kind of look at it as like a bruise as opposed to like having our head cut off, like that kind of comparison. And so we talk about the brokenness of the world as not really, it's not really disobedience, it's not, it's not a result of breaking God's law, it's, it's bad thinking and, and bad parents, that's what caused it. And bad culture and just bad experiences and bad schools and a bad economy. 
Or bad government. That's, that's what's all, causing all the problems in this world. Bad movies. I mean, that's where it's at. Or bad music. There is a lot of crappy music. It's not bad like sinful. It's bad, right? Bad music. Or bad video games. I mean, all these things, we go, these, this is the pro-. that's not the problem. The problem is bad men with bad hearts. And the minute you stop believing that the heart is the problem is the minute you begin to believe that you can manage it a different way. Like with new pills, new books, new TV shows, and new ways of thinking. Rebellion and, and sin of the heart and lawlessness is only dealt with by God through confession and repentance. He is the only one that can fix the internal. But men disobey, we disobey God's law, and it's not that we don't follow laws, we just kind of make up our own. Whatever works for us. Now God's law, we really think about lawlessness, we like to think about the things that like, well God says don't do, don't lie, don't murder. What about all the things He says to do? Because a lot of us create these hierarchies like, well, I'm pretty law-abiding in terms of God. I mean, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't have adulterous affairs. What about when you fail to love your brother? What about you fail to sacrifice for your neighbor? Oh, all things God has called us to do. We create this hierarchy of, of things that are good or things that are bad, especially the bad, and we go, well... I'm not that, as bad as that guy. I mean, the guy who, like, you know, the Bernie Madoffs, man, they are bad. That guy stole, man, I, I'm, I'm not that. Or worse, like, well, the child molester, man, that guy is evil. I'm, ne- I'm never going to be that evil. Really? You think those guys thought they were going to be that evil too? That's the darkness of our heart. That's the lawlessness that we're capable, all of us. James says that there's one law given, the same lawgiver says, all right, the same lawgiver who said don't steal and don't lie is the same one who said don't molest kids. And the sentence for any breaking of the law is death. And whatever little thing you think you've done, right? Every little sin, it's just not that big a deal. A little bit of envy, a little bit of greed, a little bit of pride, no big deal. That little sin would still make it necessary for Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross. That little sin would still require the death of the Son of God to save you. That little sin. That's the ugliness that we have to see sin, because if you don't see it as that lawless, if you don't see yourself as that disgusting person that you look down on now for their sin, if you don't see yourself, if you don't come in this room and believe that you are the worst sinner in it, you don't understand the depth of your sin. The darkness for which it is. But sin is, it gets worse. It's not just idolatry, it's not just lawlessness. And I don't feel this way very often, but I guess sometimes I might. Sin is a declaration of war. That's what the Bible says. It's not just an unfortunate choice. It's not just a moment of forgetfulness. Israel made a willful choice to join the enemies of God. To become like the enemies of God. The enemies that God had actually already saved them from once before. 
There was an active volitional choice. It's like an addiction that they decided to feed. So according to Scripture, sin is not just hatred of God's way, because that's almost understood like, eh, you know, God's way. It's actually hatred of God. When you are pursuing your sin, for those of you, honestly, who are pursuing things like pornography, substance abuse, um, abusing your wife, neglecting your wife, disrespecting your husband, those things you're pursuing, you are declaring war on God. I hate you, God. I'm working against you, God. I don't believe your truth, God. I'm going to exchange it for lies, God. I am against you, God. So you don't view it that way. You're kind of like, well, I'm just kind of, I'm Christian still. Sin is rebelling and fighting against God. Sin is resisting and running from God. Sin is blaming and blaspheming God. Sin is despising and disowning God. It is doubting His truth. It's even doubting His character. Rejecting His character. You know, I know the Bible says God is sufficient, but man, this I need this too. I know the Bible says that God is just, but He won't really care that I'm doing this. I mean, I don't feel like He's going to come, you know, smite me with fire. I know the Bible says that God is omniscient, but I don't, he doesn't really know about this. I know that the Bible says that you know, God is gracious, but that's why he's given me the freedom to do whatever I want. I know the worst one, God is sovereign, and that's why I can sin, because he's planned for that. It will glorify him, me choosing to do this. We had a guy in our church, I think it's maybe only the one issue we've disciplined. He was a leader in one of our bands. And he came and told us, like, you know what, I'm not going to be able to play in the band anymore. Um, I'm going to go live with my girlfriend. Yeah, we're sleeping together. And uh, I know God will be glorified. I can't even tell you what I told him, but it wasn't gracious. Well, it was gracious in telling him the truth. But that is just a declaration of war on God and a, a complete perversion of who God is and understanding of his sovereignty. I do believe God is sovereign over that, but not in the way that he probably hopes it's going to work out. But when we sin, we declare war, we work against God, that which is beautiful and God is made to be so, we actually try to distort into chaos by changing the rules and going against his way. We distort the image of God that is made in us to express Him, and we basically follow after sin, which is made in the image of the devil. The Bible says in the epistle of John that we're actually devil-like when we sin, that He is more of our Father than God is. Here's how Ralph Venning put it. He's an old Puritan. It's brutal. Think of sin this way. In short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of His mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. It is the unbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise, the reproach of his wisdom. And as is said of the man of sin, it opposes and exalts itself above all that is called God, so that it is God, and sitteth in the temple of God, and shows himself as if he were God. Man, if we could think of sin that way, my hope is that you begin to see grace very differently. So you see, 
God responding to Israel's sin here, their idolatry, their lawlessness, rebellion. What does he do? Well, up to this point, he's punished it by what? Spanking the snot out of him with other nations. But he does something different here. And I actually think this is the worst punishment. What does he say? Verse 11, to the end here, he says, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? He starts naming all the gods he saved them from that they've gone after. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet, you have forsaken me and served other gods? Therefore, I will save you no more. That had to be terrifying to hear. I hope that's terrifying for you to hear. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. I think we should pause and see that God didn't see it good to kill them all. But He certainly would have seen it as just. He handed them instead over Instead of handing them over to an oppressor, he handed them over to their gods that are not gods at all. They had willfully abandoned him, and now he chooses to abandon them. It's not even abandonment. He basically just gives them exactly what they want and says, I won't save you anymore. I've pursued you, and I've protected you enough. And the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God. I might say that it's a hellish thing to be apart from him. Can you imagine a father who is constantly protected, faithfully disciplined, loved, blessed, given all these things, and the rebellious child over and over and finally goes, okay, just do what you want. It's called passive wrath. God's got the active wrath. Yeah, he could raise up a nation, and he does here, but... When time to save them, he says, I, I've helped you before, I'm not going to help you this time. But then we have verse 16, and this is what I'll close with. Because I know you see here a sermon like this, oh my gosh, I am like lawless and idolatrous and rebellious, like praise Jesus, I guess, right? But verse 16 is where, and this is scripture, right? These verses you have. and 10% because grace is that, it only needs that much. It wipes out all of that. Verse 16 is awesome. And this is why I couldn't get past that. He doesn't utterly abandon his children, though he does for a time say, I'm not going to save you. What we see later is that, guess what he does? Save them. He doesn't utterly abandon them because unlike other gods... He is personal. Our God has a heart. Our God has emotions. When we say our God is love, He's not loving out of obligation. He is loving out of choice. And we all know how difficult it is to love somebody who is ugly as this. So we don't see ourselves as ugly. We don't see ourselves as lawless and rebels. We're like, I'm not that bad. No, you're that bad. And yet... God loves. Verse 16 says, 
They did. They, they started to repent. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient. But the word could be better translated grieved, anguished over their misery. There's Jesus right there. Every Old Testament, where is, there's Jesus right there. We need to understand that sin is, is yes, it's idolatry. And yes, it's, it's rebellion. And yes, it's breaking God's law. But it is breaking God's heart. I wonder if we would look at sin differently if we started going, this is actually breaking God's heart. He actually grieves over our pain. He grieves over spanking us. He grieves that we pursue other gods. You ever wondered why God uses marriage imagery so much? He even used it in the book of Judges at the very beginning. Judges chapter 2, he describes the whole book of Judges. In verse 16 it says, The Lord raised up judges, this is as they sinned, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, and yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard. That's a dark word. Describing us. They hoard after other gods and bow down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked and obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. This image of a relationship was hitting me so much this week. And then I got a phone call. And I don't make this up, but this is how sermons work. It's weird. I'll be studying and things will happen. I have a fight with my wife. Um, yes, I have fights with my wife. Um, my kids will do something. Uh, I'll have a weird conversation, or I get phone calls like this from very, very close friends. Not from them directly, but very close friend. Female, she's going to give birth on Saturday. She actually did give birth on Friday to her second child, little girl. And two days prior to that, she discovered and learned that her husband had been having an affair for over two years. And this isn't like a stranger who I go, wow, that's terrible. Something you read in the news. This is very personal. So as I began to think about this image of relationship with God and imagining, first of all, and I don't, maybe you have experienced the pain of divorce. As a pastor, I've had to experience way more than I ever thought I would. And divorce is just one of the most devastating things to relationships, not just to the two people, but to others. And there's a pain there that is difficult to even measure. But even worse in the midst of divorce is sometimes the reason for the divorce. And when it's adultery, the person who hasn't had the affair, the other person who's pursuing, the level of anger that they feel, but more so the level of rejection that they feel, and the pain of that person pursuing, for a moment can we imagine God feeling that way? For a moment, and I don't know if it's even possible for us to imagine 
us being unfaithful to God and God being the one who's just broken. I was, and this is not an imperfect husband. This is a perfect husband who's loved, who's cared for, who has done everything right, and yet is rejected. If you only think of God as breaking His rules, that will not be enough for you to stop pursuing your sin. But when you begin to see God as personal and God whose heart is actually broken and grieved, you'll begin to understand a God who can actually love. You'll begin to see grace. And we will see that God does deliver Israel. But he doesn't deliver them because they're repentant. He delivers them because He is compassionate and He is patient and He is loving and their sin grieves Him so deeply. Yet He loves them so much that He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to die and make things right. And He does all of this knowing that you and I have told Him, you know what, God, I'm just not really into you. I really like these other suitors porn and alcohol and money and achievement and respect. And they're really attractive. So, you know, maybe you're my backup plan. He knows you've said that. He knows that you've thrown this law out the window and you've treated it like breaking the speed limit. Well, you know, what's well, a few miles over? No big deal. He knows and and loves you and just kills his son and sacrifices him for you, even though you're held a gun to him, declaring yourself God and him the enemy. Yet despite that, despite that you and I rejected him, despite that we replaced him, despite that we have rebelled against him, he loves, he pursues, he is faithful. This is the God who calls you to serve Him. This is the God who offers grace undeserved. Why is it so undeserved? I just showed you. Undeserved mercy. Undeserved love. Undeserved forgiveness. But you don't know what I've done. No, I know everything you've done. And yet God says, I forgive and I love. But, I, but I'm still falling short. I forgive. I love. He knows what you have done. And He has, in fact, allowed you to do it for a time. But He loves you enough not to leave you there. That's the beautiful piece. But you have to look at your sin, I think, to see the, the depth of grace. And Robert McShane, great pastor, said this, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. But you've got to look at your sin. So I would just ask you to ask God to show you your heart and to weep. But then look at grace. I'd ask Him and ask you to fight 
the temptation to minimize your sin. In fact, you might want to maximize it. You are worse than you think. Let him show you the darkness. But then look at the grace. And then confess your sins, but not just the list of things you do, the sin behind the sin, the fact that, Lord, I have wanted to find hope and meaning and joy in something other than you. And then repent and serve him. And, and know that our sins will never have the final word and our hope will always be in the finished work of Christ because the fact is your heart and my heart are always prone to wander, as the song says. They're always prone to wander. And God knows that we are prone to be idolatrous. He knows we're prone to be lawless and minimize things. He knows that we are prone to rebel against Him at times. We are going to fail. But in Christ, we have the freedom and we fail forward. And He picks us back up. We fail again and He picks us back up because He knows all of it. And that is grace. So when you come to the table today, as we take communion, don't go through the normal routine. Yes, the bread and the cup show you the grace, but before they do that, they show you your sin. Not the sins you've done this week, the darkness of your heart that still needs a Savior, that still needs rescue, that still needs forgiveness, and will need that until the day you die and you're with Him in His presence, free from this flesh that reigns or tries to reign. So I pray today that you'll come face to face with your brokenness and ugliness, but as you do, you'll simply be led to the cross. You won't despair in your brokenness, but you will simply glory in the grace of a God who loves you despite it. Let's pray.